When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Kobe. And I'm not Dave. I'm Tom. What? what what's going on here? Uh, I actually don't know. Kobe, you tell me why I'm here. I'm yeah. producer, by the way, I am producer Tom. I'm not just you, a random guy. Yeah, you've, heard, you've probably heard his voice correcting the stupid things that me and Dave get wrong in the show, coming back with the real facts. And this is this is your voice um, without any kind of <laughs> bookended by any stupidness from me and Tom. Well, I mean, you know, there's going to be stupidness, but uh, yeah, I sort of toned it, toned, it, toned it down a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just here because, um, where is Dave? Where's he gone? Dave's on holiday in okay. Timbuktu. Right. Um, but actually, um, it's good that I'm here because I actually do appear in this episode. Because this is an episode which is... Yep. It's a it's an epic, isn't it? It's two episodes essentially pushed together that were yeah. recorded like what a year apart. That's right. Yeah. So Mark Kermode, uh, famous film critic here in the UK, uh, presents the Wittertainment Show along with Simon Mayo. Finally got round to watching The Wire when lockdown happened. So he he famously as a film critic never yeah. used to watch TV ever mm-hmm. at all. And then lockdown, he finally got round to watching Breaking Bad and more importantly for us, The Wire. <laughs> and guess what? He thinks it's brilliant. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And what's yeah. our connection to Mark Hermod? Well, I mean, like you said, well, you set Mark up there brilliantly. I mean, people forget how big as a podcaster he is. I mean, Wittertainment is a is a huge podcast, isn't it? It's massive. Yeah. Um, but also, he does another podcast called Kermode on Film, which is, if you listen to it, it's one of the best podcasts you'll probably ever listen to. And why, uh, why'd you say that? Why'd you say that, Tom? Well, it's got this real <laughs> shit-hot producer. <laughs> it's me. I produce it as well. No, I've uh, worked with Mark. I mean, uh, I've worked with Mark for maybe three years now, I think, mm. um, which, is, I mean, which is a thrill for me because, like I say, he's... In terms of what I listen to as podcasts, you know, he he's a big chunk of my weekly listen and, and always yeah, has been. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I know yourself and, and we've been to you know, we've been to see him live at the British Film Institute, haven't we? And um yeah. And stuff. yeah, so but so yeah, so I work with Mark, so it was kind of like I don't want to say the word, but it's a, a no brainer to, to get him on. I really want to the the thing is about Mark though, you know, obviously he's a, he's a film critic, he's he's very interesting person to talk to, but he's got that cinematic eye as well. I think that's something we haven't really spoken about, about The Wire, the way, uh, what cinema can learn from it and what sort of cinematic, um, you know, tricks and stuff are, are actually in The Wire that you maybe don't notice without that, you know, particular gaze. So, yeah, we, we, we reached out to Mark. Uh, the first time, the first part of it is myself and Dave talking to Mark. Um, and he hadn't got to, I think he got to series four. He hadn't finished it yet. And then a year later, we reached out to him. This time he'd watched The Wire twice through, which is great. I love it when people rewatch The Wire. And this time he'd watched it uh, all the way through to the end, of course. So we've got two different sides. The second part is with Tom talking there as well. So you'll see, you'll hear both sides of the, of the story. Um, should we head to it, Tom? Yeah, let's do it. It's, um, shall I introduce it? Shall I do, can I do it? You can do it. Uh, I need an episode title. I never get to say the episode titles. If this was a <laughs> Wire episode, what would it be called? 
It'll be called uh, the Kermode situation. Ah, oh, okay. Okay, so today we're talking about episode, bonus episode 12. <laughs> <laughs> the Kermode situation. So I guess, you know, you, you famously didn't own a television for years, right? And you missed out on the, you know, the quote-unquote, uh, the golden era of TV, including The Wire. And uh, we believe you've now watched it. So um, you, what changed? You know, was it lockdown or was it something in particular? Well, I mean, the, the not owning a television thing kind of got blown out of proportion because that was back in the... That was back in the 1980s when I was in Manchester. And actually, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there was a there was quite a few... I was a student in Manchester and then I started working there as a journalist. And there was quite a few people I knew who didn't have televisions, largely because we were living in, mm. in Hume and uh, you didn't want to have anything in Hume that was easily stealable. Um, and then it, there, there was a point when I think out of some kind of... I mean, I'm, I'm greatly given to doing things for ridiculous reasons that sound sensible the minute I think them in my head. So I, I, I moved into a flat at one point and I removed the, the television aerial connection in an act of kind of defiance against Big Brother. You know, I will not have this fed into it. But this is a long time ago. This is back in the 80s. <laughs> then when I was... I should say, Mark, I'm from Manchester. I know, I know Hume uh, not, not very well, uh, but I, I lived in Fallowfield uh, before moving down to London, so it's not, not too far away at all Fallowfield's lovely I mean I was in I was in Owens Park I was in Owens Park for a year but then I mean obviously Hume now is actually really nice since they redeveloped it it's like it's completely unrecognisable Hume in the 1980s which was you know the end it was the last period of the Crescents and the and you know Mm. and and the low rises it was I mean honestly if you were living there as, as I was as a student it was it actually wasn't bad at all. If you had to live there, it would have been com- a completely different experience. And we were there at the point that, you know, kind of proper families were being moved out because it wasn't really somewhere that was fit for habitation. But the whole place became this kind of weirdly, you know, bohemian. It was full of bands and journalists and, you know, mm. and students and anybody. So actually it was it was quite nice as long as you didn't have anything that was nickable. I mean, at one point, I've told this story before, but we got... um. I was living with a friend of mine. I was in a band. Um, the, the, we came home one day and the front door had been completely smashed in and everything that we had, which wasn't very much, had been stolen. So we lost a bass guitar and a guitar and some other stuff. And the council came around. They said, well, you know, the problem is you've got an H-frame door and those are very easy to break down. So we'll give you a security door, which is a solid door. And uh, this is an amazing thing because, you know, they're very, very, they're great. And the next time we came back, the, they'd stolen the door. I mean, seriously, <laughs> they literally nicked the door. Anyway, so um, then I, when I was working in London as a film critic, I just didn't have time for television because I, you know, mm. you suddenly realise that if you're going to do the job properly, there's a huge amount of catching up to do. If I, you know, I started watching films in the '60s and the '70s, video comes around in the '80s, and you suddenly go, "Oh wow, there's like 60 years of films before I even started watching movies." There's like a whole century of cinema. So I just made this decision, okay, I'm just going to spend my time watching movies and I'm not going to lose time watching television. That then just became a habit because, again, I decided to do it and and I kind of tend to stick to things that I decide even if they don't make any sense. And then, obviously, the whole, the world started to change in terms of the relationship between film and television. I mean, there was a point when if you were a film director and you went to television, it was considered mm. to be a step down. I remember when William Friedkin, after having you know great success with 
you know, movies like The Exorcist went back to television. In fact, there's a whole chapter in a book about Friedkin called Hurricane Billy, which talks about, wow, what a counterintuitive move. He went, you know, he started in television, he came into motion picture, and then he went back to television. Of course, what then happened was that the relationship between television and film changed so much. There was no such thing as going back to television. It was almost like advancing to television because it was, well, look, this is where long form storytelling is being done. There was a particular period when filmmakers were having real trouble making the making films at the kind of the length and intricacy that they wanted to do it. We started seeing an awful lot of special editions of movies. You know, I couldn't get this into the cinema. Here's the longer version. First of a home video, then Laserdisc, then, you know, then DVD, Blu-ray, and now download. Meanwhile, people who were working in television were going, look, this is great. I've got like a, I've got the scope of a novel to work in. And the first time I ever really became aware of that, and I remember it really clearly, was... David Simon came on the wire, uh, came on the culture show to talk about the wire. And um, Lauren Laverne was doing the interview. And I said, Oh, that's, you know, I, I'd like to know something about it because her, she and I co-presented the show, but she was doing the interview and she was a big fan of the wire. I said, you know, can somebody, somebody got the wire on, on the, you know, DVD, I can have a look at it. And they went, yeah. And they gave it to me. And it was like, they gave me like 15 hours worth of viewing. And I went, when, when have I got 15 hours? I mean, I'm, you know, so then, so then I didn't, so then I didn't watch it. And then I saw the interview with David Simon and it was brilliant. And the thing I, I remember most clearly was that there was a question that Lauren asked him. They'd set the interview up like it was kind of a lie detector interview, like he was being interrogated, but it was kind of, you know, it was a nice little dramatic conceit. But she said, the thing is, and she said it, you know, deliberately uh, to provoke an answer, which we knew what the answer was. She said, you know, that, that you, you have absolutely no respect for the casual viewer. And David Simon said, and I'm sure he said it other places, fuck the casual viewer. And mm. I thought, okay, this is, I like this. I re, I, because <laughs> it was exactly the same ethos that I had about films. His whole thing was, fuck the casual viewer. I don't have any interest in casual viewers. I don't have any interest in dilettantes. I don't have any, any interest in somebody who's just dipping in to see whether they, they like it. So then I started talking to people about it. And a lot of people said, you know, you've got to tune your ear to it. It's very complicated to get into. It's, you know, so again, so I didn't and I didn't and I didn't. Then um, my wife and my son watched, um, my son watched the whole of The Wire like twice back to back in kind of one of those because he's, you know, he's, he's young and he has time. time. And, uh, and he was, completely obsessed by it absolutely obsessed by it and he read um a, a book by linda williams the american linda williams not linda ruth williams my partner who had written a book about the wire that talked about it in terms of um melodrama and sort of reclaiming the term melodrama in relationship to the wire because people had talked about it as you know greek tragedy structure and you know but uh, it, talking about it in terms of melodrama anyway it's really fascinating and really fired up by it and then, so when lockdown happened, it was, okay, so now um, my wife and my son had watched all of Breaking Bad, and they said, look, we're going to do it all again, and you should you should jump on board. And, and so I watched all of Breaking Bad, which was just life-changing, frankly, because it's, it's, you know, it is Shakespearean, and it's genius, and I loved it, and I, I just <laughs> really, really, and once we finished Breaking Bad, it was, okay, now we're going to do The Wire. 
So everything I'd heard was like, okay, deep breath. You know, you're not going to be able to understand what anyone's saying. Fuck the casual viewer. You know, it's going to be four episodes before any of this kicks in. It's not going to be like a drama. Episode one, it was the most accessible thing I've ever watched. You were just in. Oh, it was really? like, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, great. This is genius. I've got, and I think it had been so long that it had been built up as something that was going to take effort and something that was going to be impenetrable and something that was going to actively throw off people who weren't 100% committed. And it was completely the opposite. It was just one episode in, I was like, Oh, this is great. This is like this. Yeah, no, this is great. I get this. And so, and then that was it. So we just spent lockdown doing it. So I'm now, um, we're at the end of just coming to the end of season four. And I'm now already in that, position when I think I actually don't want this to end so I'm now you know I know that there's a limited number of seasons and I know that once we're finished we're finished so I've just I've just fallen for it hook line and sinker but it wasn't that I ever didn't think it was going to be great it was that I thought it was going to be harder work than it was and what I love about it is actually you know, it's not patronising. It's not you know, it's 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 rich and complex and textured, and I love the characters. But I would I had had so long of being told, oh, you know, you just you won't be able to understand what anyone's saying, and, and it's like, yeah, I can understand what everyone's saying. This is just great. This is just great drama. So yeah, I'm completely sold. So at the moment, we're in the schools, and yeah. um, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But then every single series, you think. Okay, that's my favourite. I mean, when we got to the end of season two, which was the one when I was doing the thing on, because the Kermode of Mayo Home Entertainment Service, they, you know, I was I'm doing these little, you know, four minute pieces about the television that I've been watching, um, which I think started off as a kind of joke. They said, you know, let's get Mark to do a piece about television, ha ha. Um, so then I did a piece about Life on Mars, which was the actually the only thing that I had watched in its entirety, the only TV series that I'd watched it in, in its entirety since I was a child. And then I did a piece about Breaking Bad, and then I did a piece about The Wire, and specifically in The Wire, talking about, and again, I know this isn't anything new to everybody who knows this already. I know this is 20 years out of date. I remember being on the television, not knowing what this was when it happened. But that thing that it's not the characters that change, it's you. And I I, I, I really felt that. I really felt, particularly in relation to the piece that I did for the for the culture show was in relation to Ziggy because I thought Ziggy mm. was the most annoying character I had ever seen. And I, and I said about two episodes in, I said, God, he needs a slap. And my son said, what is that? How you think? And I went, yeah, he's really annoying. And my son was kind of slightly taken aback. Like, but by that point he'd watched the wire twice. He was now on run three. And of course, what you realize is that by the time you get to the end of season two, your heart, you know, you're heartbroken for him. And it's not that he changed, it's that you did. So if you now go back and watch The Wire again, knowing that when Ziggy's really annoying at the beginning, he's not really annoying because you know that everything is to do with the fact that, you know, what what he wants to be is the thing that he can't be and that he's been kind of forced into this position whereby, like everybody else, he has no control over, over his circumstance. He's just, I mean, yes, he's, you know, he comes on like Johnny Boy in... Um, in uh, in mean streets but it's it's all because you know it's because he can't be the thing that his dad and that everything around him wants him to be I, which i think is absolutely heartbreaking we um we i mean typically we hear from people who watch the wire the first time around that season two is their least favorite 
Um, but really? on rewatch, it becomes like, oh, I understand because there's such a step shift. And this is, this is analogous to well, this ties in with David Simon saying, "Fuck the casual viewer." Because if you've seen season one and loved it, a lot of people are like, "Oh, who are these guys? And the, where's Stringer? Where's what the hell is going on here?" Oh, okay, I recognise Jim uh, McNulty, but he's on a boat now. I don't understand what's going on. But this is the thing, the "Fuck the casual viewer" thing, where he's building out the story of Baltimore in a way that hadn't been done before. Did you? I don't. Did, uh, even the first time round, did you feel that um, that coming through to you? There was no part of me that had any problem with season two at all, because um, for a start, I mean, as I said, my, you know, my son said, it's okay, you know, it's all right, there's there's, there's a shift, but it's all right, it's all part of the same, you know, extended universe, it's like the Star Wars universe (laughs) or something, it's all part of the wire extended universe, and um, actually one of the things with season two is that after having spent you know, season one basically on the corners and in surveillance and in the in, in the rooms and everything. There is there is a grandeur to season two just because of the way the docks look. Mm. You know, I mean I know there's a different there's <laughs> there's been a suggestion that we should now go back and rewatch everything in, in four by three rather than because we've been watching it on the sixteen by nine version. We go back and watch it in the four by three. But the um you know, there is a, a kind of a sense of openness to the Doc's narrative because it's because it's the Doc's. I mean, I've got a thing about Doc's anyway. I've got a thing about you know ships and boats and and ports. That just I, we we live in in Southampton, and I there's nothing that that lifts my spirits more than than going past the Doc's. Like there is just something about Docklands which I find really magical and scary and you know and fascinating so no i had no problem with it at all i had absolutely no problem with it not least because i knew that everything was kind of part of a larger story from the beginning if you'd been watching it just unravel in real time as it was going out and you'd invested in all these characters in season one and suddenly you got to season two and you're going hang on where is everyone why are we here why is he on a boat and incidentally, when he's on the boat, he looks so uncomfortable in that uniform, um, you know. But then three sh- three three episodes in, you're no okay. It's fine. It's fine. I I, I can I, I can I can still hear the same. Now I kept thinking of that thing with the Wichita lineman, you know. I and I hear you singing on the wire, and I mean that was it, it is like there is a tune that goes all the way through all of the all of the characters. There is well, they're, they're very different. They're very diverse. There is a single voice that goes all the way through the wire, which is to do with the fact that it's not. Well, this is my feeling about it. It's not them. It's the world that they're in. You're not watching a. You're not watching a a, um, a series about a character or a group of characters making a progression from A to B to C to D. What you're doing is your. I mean, this is a stupid analogy, but it's rather like that thing in. Um, Grand Theft Auto or, or L.A. Noir when, when you turn the, the game off instantly I don't play computer games I've watched people I'm, I'm very old fashioned but when you just drive around for an hour to find the yeah. landscape you know it kind of feels like that it's much more to do with where everything is happening and everything and the world that you're in as opposed to the specific details of what's happening to each character at any one moment yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point, Mark. And I, I think you're right that the the characters don't ever really change. And when the characters do try to change or change the world around them, particularly in season three, it doesn't end well for them. You know, uh, Bunny trying to change the city's attitude to drugs, Stringer Bell trying to change the game. But um, what? Well, who besides 
Ziggy, who it sounds like you formed some sort of love-hate relationship with, uh, was there anyone else in there who you were emotionally drawn to in any way? Well, well yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, in a way, I'm kind of I'm shying away from saying in case anyone's doing the same thing as I am, which is listening to this, having not, you know, one of the worst things that happens is somebody says, "Are you watching the war?" Oh yeah, have you got to the moment when? dies yeah. and you go we'll, we'll say at the, we'll say at the yeah. top of this mark that no, no, spoilers I, yeah. spoilers are accepted no, and I understand we say, yeah, yeah no, so I, please, I, I understand to talk about anything you've I understand to. that but I, I just I have a total aversion to doing it so um sure l- let's say okay the the characters that affect me most profoundly are obviously the young characters because there is within their particular arcs um the the most at stake and the mm. most to be lost and i think what's fascinating is that for a show that nominally begins with a uh, with a you know with police work attempting to 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 crack a drugs ring okay and so it's nominally seen from a, you know from an adult perspective actually very very early on what you see is that the people caught up in all of this there is this kind of this hierarchy not only of power but also of age and there are there are a couple of you know from the very very outset there are a couple of characters that you're introduced to that you i mean some of whom are actors that you've gone on to know later on in life as grown-ups and there is this terrible there is this terrible sense of people caught in i mean and they're very very good about it about you know literally children children caught up in this in this world and there is there is a there is a there is a particularly alarming moment when a when a particular death happens involving young characters when I genuinely think I thought I I I, I can't remember the last time I was that upset about watching uh, watching a TV program and it's I mean you know um, Omar is just great Omar <laughs> is like it's you know. <laughs> Uh, famously barack obama's favorite character oh i didn't know that okay well that that kind of makes you know i mean he he, i just think he's i think that that is a genius piece of character writing everything about that character is so is so brilliantly Mm. thought through um i mean wallace you know what you what can you say (laughs) except 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 for the fact that that um at one point are you know our son said that when we, if we get a new dog, we should call it Wallace, just so that he can go. Where's Wallace? Um, you know. But, <laughs> but then, then we said, then we, then we said, yeah. And every time you do that, we'll all burst into tears because that scene, the where's Wallace scene, is is one of is one of the most powerful bits of drama I have ever seen. I just think that that scene is absolutely shattering. Did it make it a difference for you? Do you think that a lot of these characters now, the, the actors that play them, are now famous to you? You obviously you see Idris Elba and go, oh, that's Idris Elba. Um, but for the people who watched it the first time, we had zero clue about any of these people. Um, did that affect your kind of enjoyment of the show? Or did it take you out of it? Or did it involve you more than it made them 15 years ago? Well, of course, the weird thing is that, that um, you know, that McNulty... Um, of course, at that point, I presume, particularly you know, as far as American audiences are concerned, I would, was Dominic West. I mean, I've, I know Dominic West from movies. I mean, he was in um, mm. he was in Pride not so long back. I was yeah. watching that for about three episodes before I went. 
that's Dominic West, you know. Um, and, act, and actually, I think one of the things that's interesting about the show is that even though some of the actors, some of the young actors have then subsequently gone on to be, you know, he even though some Jordan of the actors... Wallace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you look at it, you go, he, wow, wow, he's young. But even in the case of Idris Elba, who is now, you know, a, you know, a superstar, nobody in the show... It's never. It never seems to be about anything other than their characters. So I'm not watching mm. it thinking, "Wow, that's the o- the only double take I did was Aidan Gillen, just because I've, I'm a really big fan of Aidan Gillen's film work, and I've never seen him on television. Of course, I know he has a whole big you know TV career, but you know the first one you go, "Oh, it's Aidan Gillen." That was that. So I was you know that many series in before there was a single person in the show that I went, "Oh, that's so and so." Do you know what mm. I mean? It was just I I I I, I it, it, it's ridiculous because obviously Dominic West looks like Dominic West, but I was watching McNulty and then I about three episodes in I went, hang on, that's Dominic West. Not because he doesn't look like him, he does look like him, but because I wasn't thinking of him as that. Because there's no point in the show because there doesn't there's no hierarchy of it. Mm. You know there isn't any hierarchy of the characters. Any of the characters at any point seem to be able to suddenly take over the narrative. Really, really important, significant characters die suddenly and with almost no repercussion. Characters who you thought, you you know, I mean, that's, that, I, I know everyone knows this. I know every single person listening to this podcast will be going, yeah, thanks. You know, now tell us that Citizen Kane is a good film and Shakespeare could quite write, you know. But this, this is me coming to it for the first time, and I haven't even finished. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm in the schools now. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry, Mark. I think everyone, you know, just, like our listeners, just love hearing people say that the wire is awesome. I think people love the show <laughs> so much, and I think it's just vindication, if anything, uh, to hear it from others. So I think personally, I'm just, I'm pleased that you've cracked it, you've joined the club because. You know, partly it's frustrating because there's so many holdouts uh, out there for like people who have their reasons. You know, I've got family members who have tried to sit them in front of the thing and say, you know, watch this. And they just never do. And uh, so I think it's a victory for The Wire that you're here. (laughs) Well, the one one thing I would say is I think there is an, an undeserved reputation that it's hard work. You know, I think if you're on the outside and you look, I mean, I'm actually, I'm looking at my shelves now and I've got, the, you know, the complete set in front of me and it looks like an imposing, you know, like a big lot of viewing, right? And I know from the outside, because a lot of people had said to me, oh, you know, it's going to take you three episodes. You've got to really work through the first three episodes. And I think that that's not true. And I think that there may be people out there who have been put off by that. So here's what I would say. It's really mainstream and accessible and you'll, get into it from the first minute <laughs> <laughs> literally the op- opposite of what we even said in our first episodes but I think the, <laughs> it, the, the, the why did change the landscape of how TV worked uh, or, or was a big part of the thrust of it because you know the characters dying of note that really wasn't a thing before before the why and now you can see it in, in other TV shows you're like yeah I, you know I'm not going to name any TV shows but it's it's a thing that's now kind of if it does happen, it's not so big as a shock. But when when it's happening in the wire, you're like, "Oh, really?" I remember one of my best friends. He sent me a text after after like, "Oh, such and such has died. It'll be such such has got shot. He'll be fine." And then next episode, he's in a body bag and he's like, 
yeah, I well, can't believe the, I've just seen what's happened. Yeah, so there, um, is, there, is, there is at least one case in The Wire in which it took me about five, six episodes to actually accept that a character had died. And, <laughs> and, and actually, and I, no, no, because um, I thought very specifically that the way that the scene had been shot was leaving an ambiguity. And then we began, you know, with a funeral. And then I said, okay, he's not in the coffin. No, 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 no. The whole thing's a set up. They've got him. You know, he hasn't done the whole thing's a, and I and, and my son, who is brilliant about this, just wouldn't give any indication. I said, he's not mm. dead, is he? He's not dead. I know he's not dead. And Gabe would just go, well, why, why do you think that? And I said, because look at the grammar of it. Look at the grammar of it. It's t- and he just was completely immovable. And it, about five, five episodes later, I went, he, he's actually dead, isn't he? He's not, <laughs> he's not coming back. He's actually dead. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I know yeah, what character you're, you're talking about. And my, my wife picked up the same threads that you did. And she stuck with them for three seasons she was wow. like oh, he's coming back it was, it was so, 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 so you know it, I, I, there is there is still a part of me that thinks I'm not at the end yet if he turned up in the final episode I'd go see see <laughs> Okay, uh, we are back here with Mark, and this time it's Tom. Producer Tom, you've heard him correcting all of the fallacies that me and David made up on air. Tom, can you say, say hello for, for live for the first time? I think we're calling me T-Bone today, aren't T-bone. we? I think we're okay. going with the T-Bone moniker You're today. plume. <laughs> and hello again, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Good to be back. Well, last time, as this is spliced, we, we spoke to you before you finished watching the whole of the season of yeah. Y. You hadn't watched season five at that point. And now you've watched it twice. Yeah. So there's a few things. To, there's a few things to unpack. Um, this first of all, just to remind you, we can spoil. I know it's again goes against every fibre of your being, but this is a spoiler-filled, <laughs> spoiler-filled episode. And we're recording this just after we've released, um, gone through season three. So I want to, I want to, I want to pick it from there okay. um, and talk about really the death of Stringer. Okay. This is one of the things we, we were kind of alluding to with Dave. And even though we'd seen Wallace, we talked about Wallace dying before, um, and we've seen D'Angelo go, was it still a surprise to you to see Stringer being taken out of the game? Yeah. And and I, I guarantee you this, anyone who says it wasn't is lying. Because, all, you know, <laughs> here's, one of the interesting things is, watching The Wire the second time round, because I've now watched, I've now gone through it twice, um, you realise the first time you, you're watching it, a lot of the time, well, I was anyway, you're kind of running to keep up. There is so much information being delivered that, that a lot of the time you're literally running to keep up with with, with what's happening. And so the first mm. time Stringer's death, I feel so terrible saying this. The first time Stringer's death happens, he dies. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, it's, it, is, it is a shock, even though it's kind of... You know he's he's cornered, and there's and the and there's the whole thing about him realizing that that's where it is, and actually realizing how he got. The second time round, when you when you realize how long that arc is set up for, it's still shocking because you mm. you still. I mean, one of the things that the wire does do, and I know that some of the actors who've played the characters have said, "Look, my character has has more in in them," and the creators said, "Yeah, that's the point." 
that's the point. The point is, yes, if your character went on and lived, all this other stuff would happen, but that's the point. But even the second time round watching it, there was an audible intake of breath because he looms so large over so much of, you know, everything. And, and, and you know, it's all mm. set up. It's not... And yet, no, it is still it is still shocking. And also it's shocking because it's kind of, it's, you know, without wishing to kind of refer to, you know, dramatic cliches, it's so unheroic. It's so squalid and horrible. Yeah. And no matter mm. what you think about any of the characters, nobody dies gloriously with the possible, ex- well, with the possible exception of one character who says, how does... I'm we- sure we're... we're, yeah. we're I, want to, I want to okay. ask that one character. I, I, I think... Potentially, know who that is. Okay. Um, I, I, I wanted to pick up there because actually, you know, we start with Stringer Bell uh, with the death, and actually, we've just completed that season. Our review that is one of the times when the wire is almost actively cinematic. You know, there's that whole Western theme, and and obviously speaking to you, Mark, as a film critic, I wonder if you picked up on earlier sort of cinematic, you know, references um, in in the in the show, or was it did it really sort of really start in in season three? Here's an interesting thing. Um, Having now, both times we watched it, we watched it in 16.9, okay? And we had a long discussion mm-hmm. about whether the second time round to watch it in 4 by 3 And and the reason we didn't was because of season two, because the Docklands is, that's the for me, that's the Western landscape. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, on the sure. waterfront. That's, you know, that's the, I mean, that Dockland setting is so epic. And not least because one of the things that it does is in the same way that the high rises do in season one. In season two, the docklands make everyone look tiny, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening at ground level with huge, big monolithic structures, even though they've kind of fallen into disrepair. And I know that the purest way of doing this, and, and oddly enough, I think that I now may now go back a third time and watch it in four by three. I should also credit, you know, my my son, who was the person who kind of, I love this, by the way. Say again. <laughs> I, I love, love this, this, by the way. Okay. My son, who was the person who who, who got me into this, um, who I think has now done all of the wire three times um, and has done it in four by three and sixteen by nine, and has you know is just a com- actually one of the great things about watching it with him um he's called gabriel is that he he's he's so into it that he will he will literally the second time around related to this he will stop and go okay now you see this is happening and that's relating to and i'm go- it's honestly it's like having some kind of genius masterclass on it and it's become <laughs> it's become such a sort of fundamental part of discussions that we're all having together so the next thing is to see it in four by three because i you know i do want to sort of experience it in that way but i mean weirdly enough four by three is actually quite good for portraiture you know for headshots and and that kind of stuff yeah and of course when you're talking about tall things in the in the docks you're not going to lose that in four by three but it's the expanse of it it's the it's the so i mean i've felt that ever since season two it's been playing like a movie but then i have always watched it in 16 by nine and i should go back and watch it in four by three what do you to watch it in well do you know what Mark um, the amazing thing is actually we make a show about The Wire Kobe's seen it a million times you've actually seen it more than I have oh really okay. so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I watch it in I just, uh, yeah 16 9 is the most recent but I watched it in the I started watching it season 5 just as it was going to air so I yeah. caught up with season 1 so it was only 4-3 at that point yeah. 
Um, but we we just had an interesting um, episode with Michael Potts, who played Brother Muzone, talking about that scene, the, the, how they shot the scene between him and, and Omar, yeah. where, it's, where it's like a Mexican standoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's talking about how that was shot and, and the Sergio Leone. That is a great uh, scene, isn't it? Were, that, is they, su- that is yeah. such a great scene. It is such a great scene. And the yeah. fact that Omar, because Omar with the coat anyway, is everything about him mm. is he is kind of the, you know, <laughs> he is the man with no name. Although I just, I mean, I think yeah. one of the things, one of the things you see watching The Wire the second time round is you're allowed to find things entertaining in a way. I mean, I, I yeah. do think the sight of people running and shouting, Omar coming, Omar coming, the streets just clearing <laughs> is actually funny. I mean, it's, you know, it's, but it is, it, it, it's a joy, isn't it? You know, Omar coming, it's just like you just see people. It's absolutely. It's funny, isn't it? It's funny how none of those, um, none of those things snap you out of it, you know, because there are some things that are a bit silly, aren't they? Like the Omar sort of heists when they dress up as old ladies and things like that. These are a bit daft, aren't they, really? Well, but weirdly enough, that, that Omar heist when they dress up as old ladies actually looks like something from a 1970s uh, cop movie. Um, what's that thing called? Mm. Uh, there is... Well, of course, in French Connection, there's there's there's, there's the the Father Christmas suits and all that. You know, there are and it, there's a there's a there's an Elliot Gould movie using Father Christmas suits. Um, it looks to me like you know like something from a seventies movie. And although it's it is slightly, it is actually, you know, you could just about imagine them getting away with it. But it's the moment when he when you suddenly because of course the first time round you don't, and the second time round you know it's coming, and you know, and what's <laughs> what then makes it terrible is the aftermath that you're there you're enjoying the setup of something but then the aftermath of what what unravels as a result of that is and that i think one of the genius yeah. things about the wire a, a, along with everything else i'll say this i think it is one of the greatest works of art i have ever seen and one of the problems is it's kind of spoiled everything else for me irreparably but it's that thing about you know all human life is here. Comedy and tragedy are sitting side by side. The Brother Mazone thing is interesting because Brother Mazone is actually, for me, the one character in that film who feels inorganic. They feel like that. But of course, that's part of the plot because they've come from another world. And all the Brother Mazone feels, mm. feels like he's walked off a different series. I mean, it literally feels like he's walked in there from somewhere else and everything about him. He, he Of all the characters, he is the one that's the most constructed. He is the one that's the most... This is a nearly a fictional character. But uh, the second time round, the thing I was kind of clicking into was, yeah, and that's the point, because he has literally come from another world. He is not part of their world, and everyone else you're seeing in that drama is part of that world, and he isn't. Dave will be so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> um, Mark, think, thinking about the cast, I mean... There's so many people in that cast that you have spent time with. And in spending time with them, you won't have seen The Wire when you, when you spent that time with them. Now, when you meet people like Dominic West or Wendell Pierce or Clark Peters, will that change? Will your introduction to them be completely well, different? Okay, okay. so Tom, so here is the, the really strange thing. I've been on stage with Clark Peters before I saw The Wire. Okay, he came on MK3D and he was coming on to talk about musicals. And I'd never seen The Wire. I you know knew his other work, but I didn't know The Wire. And... We were watching The Wire, and I went, I've done it on stage with him. And my friend went, what? And I <laughs> wish now that I could get back in a time capsule and go back to that MK3D and just go, 
Oh my God. Let's not talk about anything else. Okay. Let's just talk about this. Just last night I was watching, um, cause I've actually, one of the things that's happened during lockdown is I've become addicted to television. And as always with me, I do, I do you know, I do nothing by halves, you know, of course, so I, you know, um, so last night we were watching pursuit of love. And of course, Dominic West is in pursuit of love. And literally, I mean, I love Dominic West's mm-hmm. performances in a lot of things, but Dominic West walks on and it's bang. just this week. I'm watching, uh, those who wish me dead which is an angelina jolie thriller in which the assassin is played by aiden gillen now i have always loved aiden gillen because <laughs> i think he's you know charismatic and he's got that kind of right thing about him but it, you know it's coquetti it's, it's a weird thing isn't it that you suddenly realize that all these people that you were kind of connected to around this other way actually the wire is the lodestone of of everything <laughs> and i and again it's that thing about it sort of spoils it for everything else. Although one of the things that has been quite interesting is, particularly with the younger actors, is looking at what happened to them when they went on to work in other things, because the young cast are so, so brilliant. I mean, just mm-hmm. so completely convincing. There's not a false note in those performances. And it's been really interesting. You know, you stop second time round, not first time round, and look them up. Okay, fine. Oh, yeah, I've done this and this and this and this and this. And... You know, and I know, you know, whether it's Michael B. Jordan, you know, on, on the one hand, who, of course, the first time I was watching, I didn't recognise as Michael B. Jordan at all because he's no, just no. a child, you know. <laughs> and the game's going, that's Michael B. Jordan. That's, Mike, that's Michael B. Jordan. This is where it comes from. I mean, we're going to talk, we want to talk a lot about season four and five in this, mm-hmm. and this is alludes to the, to the kids uh, that we're talking yeah. about. We've, uh, for season four and five, we have... Um, recorded so far with all of the uh, the boys of summer as they as they kind of refer themselves to by the first episode, apart from Michael today, but we're still trying to connect with him. Um, but do you dare, Mark, declare which is your favourite season, season out four. of the wire before we go season four? Oh, well, I was about to dive into season four. Let's 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 take it. Season four is, I mean, you know, a bit, you know, we've talked a lot about this in in my family. And I mean, I have a mm. huge fondness for season two. I know that when season two first played at the beginning, there was a lot of kind of hang on about a minute. What are you doing? You've thrown out all the things that we love about season one. And But I do, I loved season two. Um, I When we did the thing for Culture Show, I, you know, I was talking about that, you know, that arc of Ziggy's character that, that at the end of, you know, mm. Ziggy is the most annoying character you've ever met until the end when you just, you realise where all that came from. Um, season four is... So, I mean, it, it's rich and it's involving and it's dark and you know, it's, it's, I mean, the, the 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 bad things that happen in season four are just heartbreakingly bad. But I it, I I think it's the, I think it's the season that most perfectly embodies all the things that are great about The Wire. The idea mm. that, you know, it is about all these people on individual journeys, but it's also about the fact that, you know, the whole thing about, you know, it's all in the game and you can change the game. And, you know, the only it, that idea about the the classroom and the, you know, the OK, let's actually practically try and solve this because there's a throwback to the whole, you know, Amsterdam thing, which is, OK, let's let, let's for a moment forget the, you know, the poly- how would you actually make this situation better? And one of the arguments going on in season four is, well, you would do this, but that doesn't tick any of the boxes and that doesn't fit any of the right descriptions. And OK, but let's try it. And it's one of the things that The Wire is brilliant at doing is is 
saying, look, there is another way of doing this, but nobody wants to do it. And all you, you know, and I know it's a kind of, it's a police, it's a, it's a cop movie cliche. You know, there's somebody who wants to do the right thing and everyone's just yelling at them. But in The Wire, you do get that desperate sense of that there are movements going the right way, but they are met with nothing but obstruction. Mm. Also, I think it is important that there are glimmers of hope, that there are glimmers of there is, you know, this isn't, you know, it's not just, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny and lively and the classroom stuff is, you know, it's really, you just, I just loved being in that series, even though it is absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. But that series is genius. And I think actually the bad rap that season five gets, and I think there are problems with season five. I still really enjoyed it. I think it's kind of interesting that, that when we get into newspapers, which is actually the area that David Simon, you know, obviously knows, most, it, it feels most constructed. But I think one of the problems with season five is that you come off the back of season four and that's a really hard, mm. a really hard act to follow. But I do still, I mean, there's not a season of The Wire that I don't love and wouldn't watch again. But season four is the next level. <laughs> Every season has its own sort of, uh, it's, its own rules, has its own its own theme. And um, I wonder if we could sort of secret cinema it, uh, secrets of cinema it, Mark. Okay. You, know, you, you break down the rules of movies a lot of the time, right? And um, season four, I mean, it's, it's is it a, com- what, what would it fit in? Is it, is it a coming of age story? Is it a... A melodrama, but does it does it have any particular sort of secrets of cinemas type rules that you yeah. can identify? I mean, it's it's interesting that you say this, Tom, because whilst I was watching it, you know, you think back to the history of those kind of movies, you know, back to Blackboard Jungle, and you know, coming of age movies are a very particular thing. And we actually did a secret of cinema mm-hmm. on coming of age movies, and you know, we wouldn't have been able to talk about the why because it was a TV series, but it is absolutely a coming of age story it's a series of coming of age stories but you know all ha- i mean happening across a range of age groups but it, they're all happening you know kind of in tandem so it's a classroom movie of that kind of social realist you know richard brooks style which which has a cinematic heritage it's a coming of age thing I mean, it, it was interesting when we were doing Secrets of Cinema that if you look at, you know, Boys in the Hood and uh, Stand By Me, is that there are deliberate mirrorings of those, uh, you know, of those those tropes in the film. But, I've literally just listened to a podcast exactly about that, Mark. Yeah, it's fast, and it's 30 years old, Boys in the Hood, isn't it? You yeah. Know, it's just, just turned 30. I mean, isn't that astonishing? Is it 30 years yeah, wow. old? Is it 30 years I old? I couldn't believe that. Because I, I remember, yeah, I, yeah, I remember watching it when it came out, and I must have been eight. See, that's terrifying. Yeah. I reviewed yeah. Boys in the Hood for Sight and Sound magazine when it came out, um, and yeah, thirty years ago. I mean, I'm I'm nearly sixty now, so I'm an old man. But so those those kind of coming of age tropes are all in there, and they're in the DNA. But the genius of what The Wire does is that you don't watch it and see the tropes. Usually, when you do a secrets of cinema, one of the things that Kim and I, Kim was the other the, the kind of lead writer on it. What we were trying to demonstrate was that there are certain key stories that get told again and again, and the way in which those stories work. Um, when you break them down, it's not a matter of saying, you know, it, it's repetitious. It's saying there are kind of key elements and the film, films do these interesting things with them. And when we were doing a secret of cinema, our kind of key thing was no sneering. Okay. No sneering. It's, we're not, we, we're not saying this is the, 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 oh, this is not like cliches of cinema. It's tropes. And also came out a whole thing about never use the word tropes. Um, but when you watch those <laughs> tropes, pardon me, play out in, the wire. The interesting thing is that they don't. They play out in very, very different ways. And I think the thing that makes the wire feel or 
particularly that series, feels so organic, is on the one hand you think, okay, I can see where this fits into a tradition of movies that I know and like and love, you know, that goes, as I said, back to, you know, Blackboard Jungle and beyond. But what's fascinating is I'm not thinking of it in those terms at all, only after the fact, which is why it's interesting that you asked that question, because I've actually thought about it and thought, why was it that when I was watching (laughs) it, all those mechanisms didn't go, oh, that's that, and that's that, and that's that. Mm. And the reason is because actually, whilst I was watching it, I believed 100% in every single one of those characters. Every single... I mean, those young performances Mm. are just astonishingly good. To the point that you're tempted to imagine that everyone is playing themselves, which does them a great disservice. Yeah. Does them a great disservice because they're not. They're acting. But they're so good that you you, th- you you kind of, oh, they are just who they are, you know, that they're not acting. I think one, well, I think, thing, one, one of the things you talk about, sorry, Kobe, one of the things you talk about a lot, Mark, in, in cinema is, I think, what's the quote? Is that cinema is a vehicle for creating empathy? Or it's, a Roger, it's a Roger You're, Ebert quote. Roger Ebert said, and I agree with it, that mm-hmm. cinema is a machine for creating empathy. Well, I think season four, I mean, it's very, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's that, you know, to the power of 10, isn't it? I mean, the amount of empathy it creates for those characters is so powerful. I think that's what, that's what I was going to go towards, uh, Tom, with the, because w- one of the things I love, one of the things I love about the final episode of each season is that montage at the end. And the scene of season five montage, uh, there's two things that has me, you know, has me welling up each time. One is uh, Bubbles walking up the stairs to, to, his, to his sister's um, uh, dining room. And the other one is seeing where um, where Dookie is. And that's a two that's a two season arc that takes you to where Dookie is. That's a five season arc to take you where, to where Bubbles is. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, you know, you don't see those lines, like they talk about secret cinema, you don't see those lines, not, they're not as easily drawn uh, in in the, in the cinematic tropes as you, as um as it would be in other in other productions, yeah. but it's so that and that's why I think season five gets a, a bigger pass for me because of that five minute segment at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these characters, yeah. the no, all of these, um, and I'm absolutely not criticizing season five. It's just it, it is oh, no, hard no. after season. But I mean, of course, one of the things, I mean, Bubbles, who I think, you know, is like one of the greatest characters ever written. The stuff mm. with Bubbles in the school, on the one hand, there's the whole heartbreaking narrative about what Bubbles is trying to do and where that narrative is going. But there's also the comedy of Bubbles being in the school and and bumping into the people that he knew as cops. And there's that, you know, that whole, the, the whole Presbolewski thing. In the, I mean, again, that's sort of... A, I mean, Bubbles is, Bubbles is such a great character because... There's, you know, I mean, people say this all the time, but the, the, that sort of Shakespearean mix of, uh, you know, on the one hand, the, the genuine tragedy of his character, I and mean, there are things that happen in his character's arc that are genuinely, you know, properly, tragically dramatic. But also mm. because he is really funny. And, you know, that, that there, there are, I mean, there's the whole sequence in which the which the, the long lead up of him constantly getting beaten up when he's taking the trolley out is so horrible and so heartbreaking yeah. and particularly when you know where that particular thread of the story is going but one of the things i know that I, this this is something that's uh, well known amongst wire fans apparently that it's often been pointed out that if the criminal organisations had any... Bre- they'd just take out Bubbles, because he's literally the key to everything. <laughs> if, if you just took Bubbles out of the equation, no one would know anything. 
And, you know, I... That's absolutely true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, again, this is... Yeah. I, I should credit my son for this. He said this is something that's been talked about, you know, by what so You take bubbles out of the equation everything stops you know no the police have got no idea what's going on nobody knows anything and his I mean, this is it, what Kima Kima says about the the key to a good cop is having a good criminal informant yeah and yeah. this is where bubbles is is good because he's he's hiding in plain sight uh when he's doing the hat trick at the start when he's sharing the hats with all the with all the guys people know him but they just want him they want to sell him the drugs yeah so they don't even suspect that he's a ci so even if you could if you knew bubbles was the ci he'd be taken out in the shop but he's, he's so good at what he does both as an actor under a row but also as bubbles within the show um that you that i think it's, it's super plausible but you, you, your son's completely right if they realize there's bubbles you know stringer issues the order and then he's he's gone and then they're yeah. back to okay yeah, yeah and then you know but you. also that thing you say about um you know, when, when Kima says that that is the key to it, there is also another scene, forgive me because my memory is bad, when I th- it's either Herc, in which he's specifically told, your problem is you don't have any, co- you know, you don't have any feet on the ground, you don't have any contacts, you may be, you may think that's, you're a good cop, but you, but you... Sorry, Kavi, I spoke That's Bunny talking to Carver. That's, that's right, that's, that's right. Talking, talking exactly, Carver, thank you yeah. very much. And yeah. um, and that's a brilliant scene because because it's one of the examples of somebody saying something that you already know that in any other context them saying it out loud would make you think why are you explaining the plot to me but when they say it you go <laughs> oh yeah yes that that's yes that's a very good point that hadn't actually crystallized in my head one thing I'd like to talk about, Mark, is well, there's loads of things, and and this, these all come from the fact that I've listened to you for so long, and and it's sort of it's sort of drawing things back to things you've already spoken about. But I think one thing I want to talk about is the the city as a character. Yeah. I mean, we we see this in movies all the time, but The Wire introduces Baltimore as a character so brilliant. I mean, I think we all feel like we know Baltimore from watching The Wire, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I was what there's a I was watching a film uh, just yesterday, and um, I think it was a film. Yeah, it was a film. And somebody says, oh, I know what it was. It's the new Saw movie, okay, and which stars Chris Rock, uh, which is kind of... Mm, yeah. Spiral. Yeah, yeah. Spir- Spiral from the Book of Saw, I believe, is the, is the full title of it. Yeah. And he says to... There's a there's a drug drop happening uh, out of the window of a building, and he says to the rookie, he says, do you know what that is? And the guy says, yeah, it's a drug drop. And they put the thing down. And, and Chris Rock goes, oh, someone's been watching The Wire. And he says it in this kind of, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you know. You know, The yeah. interesting reason that that gag doesn't work is because The Wire is actually one of the few series about that 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 joke doesn't work with. Because actually the way in which The Wire tells you that isn't in a movie cliche way. It is in a way that is that's far more complicated than that. Because, you know, you see that thing about the thing coming out the window in things like Sid and Nancy and, you know, we've all we've all been familiar with it. And the the weird thing about that joke is it doesn't work if you actually know the wire. It only works if you don't know the wire. Um as far as the, the location thing is concerned, you know, there's that thing in the, well, of course you do, you've seen it so many times, the thing when it when the camera pans over the Bodymore Murderland piece of graffiti. There is a really strange thing is that every time I watch The Wire and I have never been there, um, I feel exactly as you just said, Kobe, that you get the sense that you know the place, but I'm also conscious of the fact that I know it through a TV series that could also fit into the, the the saw joke that doesn't work. Oh yeah, who's been watching the wire? And 
so I've got two things in my head at the same time. One of them is I know this place intimately. I have walked these streets. I have lived on the street. The other one is I have never been there. I've watched the television series from my middle-class house in the New Forest. And it's created a really strange anxiety in me about how much I now feel like I know a place that I have never been to. And I say that particularly as someone who detests movies depicting Ireland made by Americans who have only ever been to theme pubs in which they drink dyed green Guinness and dress up as leprechauns. <laughs> so it is it is a really, a really big tension in me because I feel so much like I know the city. The crucial thing is whether that's the city in real life or the city of the drama, the crucial thing is it is the character and it is not a, it is not a drama series that stars a character. You know, it's not McNulty. I love the fact that, that Bubs calls him McNutty. I love, I just, I, I can't think of him as anything <laughs> other than McNutty, but it doesn't star him and it doesn't star anyone else. It stars the city and the Docklands and the, you know, the high rises. And that's what, that's the star. And it is interesting that when you watch the, like on the Blu-ray, for example, the beginning of every series, they have a different collection of faces, you know, they seem to bear no relation to who's in that particular series. And you go, oh, well, I, you know, I kind of understand that everyone's kind of in everything, but it's actually because there isn't a single lead star other than, you know, Bodymore Murderland, that's the, you know, that is the, the, the star of the, of the, of the show. So we talk about some of the, some of the characters uh, specifically for season four. Um, and then I know, the, I know the few kind of kingpin, uh, sorry, key characters that make yeah. it through to season five as well. Um, and also any of the, any of the storylines there in season four they want sure. to pick up on. Um, well, let's talk with, you know, Randy, Dookie, Michael and, um, and Naimond. Yeah. The Boys of Summer, as we're introduced them in season four. It's a lovely, um, it's a lovely name, isn't it? The Boys of Summer. That is such a, mm. it's such a beautiful phrase. Yeah, I and mean, then it comes back to that phrase as well. One another heartbreaking uh, piece because you see the arc changes yeah, so much yeah. when they're together. The Boys of Summer. The, you know, when you when you're friends with the kids you grew up with in primary school, and then soon you go to secondary school, and then people dis- disperse. But the dispersions happen for different reasons here because you know. Baltimore's taking its toll on people. But when when Dookie's talking to Michael saying, you remember that day once in the past when we got beaten by those guys and we threw, yeah. the, we threw the piss billions at them and Michael's, his head's just completely in a different world. And he's like, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, yeah, his yeah. head's just gone completely different. Well, Dookie is- That is, loss of innocence. Dookie is kind of the character. I mean, Dookie has such a, such a, a sort of a troubled face. I mean, you know, mm. like I know that the, the drama does this, but it literally looks like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. We know that he actually practically is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. But every single time that Dookie is on screen, you feel... <sighs> it sounds like such a stupid thing. Like, Especially during a second re- run through, you probably, because you know where he's going. Yeah, yeah. It's, it. you just, you, you just... You get that thing because one of the things that Prez starts to, you know, to, feels during that season is is this kind of just desire to adopt everybody, you know, this kind of, you know, and and keeps being told these aren't your kids, these aren't your kids, stop it, you know. But the, the, there is the whole thing about about Dookie's predicament, and his face is so brilliant for it because he he his face looks like it's a mixture of innocence and experience and that kind of it's not it's not even, i mean it is sad but it is it's it's not hanged it's i think he's 
I think he is, every time you see him on screen, you know that thing where you were just saying about a machine for empathy? You, you Every mm-hmm. atom of you just is is feeling some kind of empathy for that character. And it's and I'm sure now from the second time around, it's a lot of it is his face. Because a lot of the time he's not talking. A lot of the time he's listening. A lot of the time he's not answering questions. And a lot because the whole point about his arc is he's not saying the thing that's in you know Yeah, so I think that's I mean that's that is that is a brilliant performance and a brilliant piece of casting, incidentally. What about I mean Dookie turning to the the drugs I mean, one of the things about the boys of summer is that we we see then Michael turns into Omar. Yeah. Dookie's becomes the new bubbles, and that is that cyclical inevitability is, is um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of tough to take well, for me anyway. When I when I when I rewatch it, but this is I mean this is specifically talked about in terms of when they're in the when they're talking about the the special class stuff, and they're talking about the. Mm. Um, they know what they need to know. Okay. They know what they need to know for their, for their world. And there's, you know, that's, yeah. which is a kind of discussion about everything that's going on. The cyclical thing, when you say like, you know, so-and-so becomes so-and-so and so-and-so becomes somebody else. Yes, I agree with you, but with a reservation, nobody ever actually becomes simply the person. What they do is, and of course this takes us back to the whole you know the 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 chess metaphor which is the one moment in the in the in this in the whole series which absolutely shouldn't work when chess is explained and it shouldn't work okay the whole thing about you have a series of leaders and a series of um soldiers and a series of and everything gets replaced and you know and coquetti and everything but but nothing changes okay nothing changes but the but the pieces move around and yet the really fascinating thing is that each of those characters is not the person that preceded them. You know, so it's not that one character gets removed and somebody simply steps in, although the drama puts them in that position. One of the things that's really clever is they are still the person that they were before. And I think the reason, sorry, this is a kind of very convoluted point, Kobe. So please bear with no, no, me. No, go, go. Bear with me while I try to explain this. Okay. My theory about why the wire works as well as it does is to do with a with with a grid square thing. Okay, narrative arc goes. If you imagine this, narrative arc goes. If you go left to right like a bridge. Okay, okay, it's a bridge. It's, it's I'm I'm for people listening. I'm drawing in in the air. I'm drawing a bridge that goes from left up down to right. Okay, that's what people think of as a narrative arc. Then you have like horizontal lines of what characters are so the boss the second in command the you know the the foot soldiers the boys on the street corner mm-hmm. the police the th- okay so you've got a series of grid lines going that way of the positions that everybody occupies but what's really fascinating about the wire is that it's the it's the vertical stripes of each individual character's vertical journey through that that drives you it's only when you step back that you look at it as a series of exactly as you've said, and you're quite right, the positions are the same, but the people that occupy those positions are changing. But the genius of The Wire is you don't watch it like that. You watch it as a mm. series of vertical lines, with a seri- many of which are incidentally cut short. And the more I think about this, the more I think that what what makes it so special is that when you're on those vertical lines... 
okay, you understand, you see, you know, people, you, you know, he was there and now he's there. He was this position. Now he's that position, even when they do the montages, but you still stay on the vertical track. You still stay on the individual character. Track. And one of the reasons it becomes so hard to talk about the, the wire when, for example, we talk about individual characters in individual scenes and individual series, it's almost impossible yeah. to remove that character from the entire line of their character development. And I actually mm -hmm. can't remember in which series things happen to key characters. Yeah. Like, I mean, somebody said to me the other day, when does, um, this is so foolish, right? You know, where's Wallace? Which series is that in? And I went, okay, um, I had to think about it from, you know, because you forget where the overlap lines are because you're thinking in those. I'm sorry, that is a really convoluted... I've been trying to think of a way of no, explaining no, what it is. We, we booked you for convoluted uh, explanations. <laughs> but, do, but, do, but do you understand what I mean? It's it's like... Yeah, and, absolutely. Course, and weirdly yeah, enough, the reason I like that theory is because it fits very nicely with the chessboard metaphor. One thing I say to my... Um, you know, when I was telling my friends to watch The Wire... Um, because the other, the other big kind of show, HBO show at the time, was Sopranos, um, which I haven't seen. Which I don't know if you watched. The, I haven't yeah, seen it, and no. that's and that's fine. <laughs> that's it's fine. a treat, Mark. Uh, but with and and this is you know the why then leads into things like Breaking Bad, where the the story ongoing narrative you see you can't it's hard to discern where Walter White ends and Heisenberg can you're not sure where he broke bad, for example. And this is this is one one thing I like about Breaking Bad. But with the, the Sopranos, for example, which is another um, gold standard TV show, I'm happy watching one episode in isolation with the okay. Sopranos and it's great. But if I, if, if I, I can't watch one episode of the wire no. in isolation, I no. have to watch it from the start to the finish. And Kobe, that is, that is much more eloquently and much more concisely what I was just trying to say in my <laughs> random grid square metaphor. You have literally just said what I just wasted 10 minutes attempting to say that, that they are not individual episodes, that they are all part of a continuum no. at which at any point these threads are going and you can't, and we do this, you know, this is how we ended up watching it. The whole thing is you watch, you watch one and then you do another and then you, should we do another? Yeah. Should yeah. We, and how many is it in? Is it eight, we do another and then it's three o'clock in the morning and I've never done that before yeah. I mean I binged on um, Breaking Bad and I watched all of Breaking Bad mm -hmm. and I've watched all of Better Call Saul um, you know we're still mm -hmm. waiting for the, for the end of Better Call Saul and the thing about um, Breaking Bad Walter White and Heisenberg that you know at what point does one end and what point does the other one begin which is you know which is I, I you know I love all that that's great but the thing is that in the in terms of uh, in terms of the wire, the way in which those those kind of you know is he that character or is he that character doesn't get resolved. I think that if you think about break, I mean I love Breaking Bad. I absolutely love Breaking Bad. I really did. I even sat through you know uh, you know the the TV the the movie spinoff whatever it was called El Camino or whatever it yeah. was you know which kind of which was all right, but it wasn't terrible. But it was kind of it was kind of all right. But in the case of it's the wire, you can't you know you can't place it. I mean the mo the most profound thing is the fact that Omar is the thing that nobody else is. That all the kind of wannabe kingpins they all want you know their name ringing out. They all that's the thing you know they want that the only character who actually has that is Omar. And so, Om mm. and so Omar becomes this mythical figure, and then the manner of Omar's end, he said that was the that I think was one of the most shocking things was that. Well, talk, let's talk about Omar's end because we, okay. we, when we talked last time, um, you were saying about how how you were kind of astonished by Omar as a character, yeah, 
Um, so how do you, how does he progress for you through season four I love and five, Omar. and then his his demise? Well, I mean, is, I, j- um, I just I love Omar. I think that performance is just mm. brilliant. I love the fact that mm. he doesn't. I love the way he speaks because he speaks like a Shakespearean character. You know, he doesn't cuss and swear. It's you know, indeed, and mm. and uh, and he has this kind of lyrical turn of phrase. I love the fact that that character. I mean, I'm sorry to say something is really obvious. I love the fact that there is a, a gay character right in the middle of that drama, and it's. You know, yeah. and then we get on with everything. I like the fact that he is the most dangerous person on screen, but also the one with actually has got a, you know a, a code of morality. I love the whole thing about taking his mum to church and being outraged. Mm-hmm. No, his, his grand church and, and being outraged about that thing about they shot her crown. I mean that whole that whole mm-hmm. sequence is is brilliant. But the thing about um, and and if we're allowed to enjoy it, the thing when Omar is in court is one of the greatest pieces of stage. <laughs> that is just, just genius. And the fact that during that sequence, he actually rattles the lawyer. He actually rattles yeah. the lawyer who spent the whole of the rest of the, the show just being completely, you know, and he's actually one of the most genuinely wicked characters in the in in the series because we you know he is responsible for deaths he has conversations that res- that result in people dying um there's mm-hmm. no question about that's what happens he says this in a bar he says you got to tie up these loose ends and then other people die and the fact that in court omar wearing that ridiculous tie <laughs> you know nails him and he and he actually gets angry he actually gets, you know, like angry. Is that is? I mean, I that that weirdly enough is one of the few episodes I could watch out of context because that scene is so brilliant. And so through everything, when you kind of, you know, you get to love the fact that Omar is completely honest. He is. He doesn't lie. He he. You know where he is. You know. You know what he's doing. Where he's coming from. And so if we're going to do plot spoilers, the manner of his death yeah. is so. St- startling because we have seen that kid before right we've seen him yeah. peripherally because actually watching it the second time around game said that's the kid who later on did he say did he say at the start of season three that's the kid the kid does everybody do that i'm sorry i'm a kind of an, i'm a novice no, to no, this, no, you know but but yeah no, no was, we like we like we like letting people because it's only through my, my latest rewatch and we we've, we found we spoke to Talito who plays um he plays the kid who shot Omar. His 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 um his Instagram name is uh, is actually at I shot Omar. Oh really? Uh, so it's, it's, <laughs> okay, um, but there, but there but is so speaking to him. Uh, sorry, carry, carry speaking carry. to him. I was like, hold on, you you were in season three, and he, yeah, he's there in season three is when someone when Kimmy or Toshi gets shot. And he's, he's, a kid, he's one of the kids saying, no, I'm playing Omar now. And exactly. that's the first time you see exactly. him. Exactly. And of course, and yeah. that's the brilliant thing about I'm playing him because they're all, it's like cops and robbers. It's like Western that they're yeah. seeing it and the thing. And then he does the, and it's the, because it's the, it's the pawn and the king, isn't it? It's the, you know, to do the mm. chess metaphor again, that the pawn can't, the pawn is a sort of foot soldier. And also it's just so, it's just so brutal, so genuinely shocking. And of course, Absolutely perfect, absolutely perfectly as it should be, but really genuinely astonishing that it, that it happens in that kind of. You know, I remember when when Gabe, my son, was watching uh, the Wire the first time. Uh, we were we hadn't watched. It. He was watching it in his room, and he had all the thing. And there was a moment, uh, and he went, "Oh no!" And it, mm. and then about twenty minutes later, he came out, and I said. What, you know what happened? He said, "Oh, this thing I'm watching, I just I love it." And he, I, he said, "But they, 
characters just randomly completely unexpectedly die and it's nothing it's not dramatic it's just one minute they're there and alive and the next minute they're not and I, you know, and I was really struck by that because usually you'd have, I mean, you think about um, Breaking Bad. I mean, think about the, the arc leading up to Walter's final demise. Think about, you know, it's like the engine is so noisy, you can barely hear the dialogue, mm. you know, right down to the phone call at the end about, you know, yeah, I always knew, oh, what's he doing? Oh, yeah, you know, he's saving himself because he's doing these, saving her by doing, you know. Omar, it's just in that, squalid little you know shop and uh, yeah it's a, it's amazing i didn't realize that guy's instagram thing was i shot him. that's really funny that is really funny Brilliant. that scene reminds me a lot of um city of gods the film yeah, yeah. um where you have the, the kids and favelas and they almost replace they almost take out the people that are getting replaced but that was there's this there's this, a key scene with a character called little dice little z who just goes on rampage and just takes out a few of the, the kingpins in City of God. And it was this guy, uh, Kennard, uh, played by Toliso, um, just walks into, he sees Omar, he's got a gun, and that's the thing Omar's not prepared for. He's prepared mm-hmm. to jump out of a five-story building and land, repair his own leg. Yeah, He's prepared to fight off Stringer Bell and Avon Barksdale. He's prepared to um, t- take the cops on a, on a, on a merry-go-round. But he was not prepared for one of these hoppers to take him out unexpectedly when he's buying some orange juice, yeah. and that's, I think that's the fitting. That is a fitting end for. No, but that's what I mean about it. It's it's perfect, and to sort mm. of to to come back to the thing I mentioned earlier on, the thing with um with Snoop and you know how's my hair look? Is that is that the death you're talking about? Yeah, because it's yeah. I mean, again, like all of them, it's, I mean, I, I, there's a ho- there's a whole section when it, when you know Snoop and Chris are the most terrifying characters you have ever come mm. across, and the, you know, the, the 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 sort of the dark the darkness of the world in which they live. Although there is all the, there's the humour of there's the thing when Snoop is buying the, the nail gun. And, yeah. and she's having the conversation with the guy about, you know, what you can actually do with the nail gun. And then she does the thing about just giving him the money. She says, no, you sold the fuck out of that thing, you know. <laughs> and they they are, again, they're like kind of, they, there is a Shakespearean thing there. They, there's like a Shakespearean graveside comedy to that. But the whole, everything about what's happening, you know, with the, you know, with, with, with the empty buildings and the, the just the sheer plodding, mundanity of it and the hot the, the horror of it that you know that what's the phrase you know they're dropping bodies because they can because they're being told to because you know this mm-hmm. is all part of the kind of expanding empire but that thing at the end when she, she she's always known that that's where it's going to go and that's why you know how does my hair look or whatever whatever quite the line is is it's it's just the acceptance of well this is this is what it is there there i never had any i never had any doubt that this was what it was going to be and this is what it is and that scene is because you know everything that's happened with her character is so is so dark it's actually you know one of the darkest things in the wire but that ending is mm. really profoundly dramatic and moving because because she, her because snoop knows what world snoop lives in and knows yeah. and that's it and this is of course this is of course this is where it's going to it- Inevitable. Uh, well, I want to ask you that. You know, obviously, as a, as I think, the wire. We all agree, it's, it's a masterpiece in storytelling. And um, 
for for filmmakers, what what do you think filmmakers could learn from watching it? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly around this. There's a theme that we talk about a lot: show rather than tell. Mm-hmm. And I think The Wire is just a, a shining example of that, isn't it? It is. Um, to- and also, just to, just to add to that, is the is I think something that Marvel does well, whether you like individual films or not, is the uh, yeah, is the ongoing narrative mm-hmm. that, that follows through that interweaving narrative. But yeah, sorry. yes, no. yes. Well, you know, we're in an interesting position at the moment that um, episodic television and uh, genre franchise movies are actually inhabiting a similar uh you know world what people refer to as the marvel cinematic universe or the you know the dc extended universe or you know those are basically taking their lead from episodic television it's interesting that in the early days of popular cinema serials were you know were all the rage you know people would go to you know, like in the fifties and things, people would go to, to to see serial movies and the Superman things all began as sort of you know short serials. These were like regular short features that had recurring characters that were considered to be you know B picture you know kids stuff, but that it 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 was a long running thing. And then feature films became you know the staple of cinema. I mean, for a long time, cinemas only did show short things. That's all. That, that's the only things that existed when we were doing sequels of cinema and pop movies. We had that. Um, uh, Bessie Smith's St. Louis Blues two-reeler, which is, uh, you know, what is it, like 19 minutes long or something. And people would go to see that, okay. Features then became standalone, this is the story. And then there's a period when features are great big epics, you know, four hours long, Ben-Hur. And then everything kind of settled down to round about two hours. And then there was this kind of argument about whether or not director's cuts should be longer. And I remember when... Uh, Freakin was talking about why he cut The Exorcist down. He said, you know, anything over two hours, you know, your head goes with it, but your ass gives up. So there was, they, they kind of developed into a thing with cinema that cinema is two hours long. Or if it's a really long movie, it's four hours long, but that's a really long movie, okay? Four hours of television is nothing. I've just watched all of, um, mm. you know, Pursuit of Love and it's three episodes and it's like, okay, that's shorter than some films that I've seen. But that idea of episodic um, recurring characters is now where the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC Extended Universe or the Star Wars Extended Universe goes. So there is an argument that television and cinema are moving closer to each other. I would honestly say, and I'm not being facetious, that my if I if what a filmmaker could learn from The Wire is that television is really great. Um, and there are things <laughs> that you can do in television that you'd have a really hard job doing in cinema outside of huge expanded fantasy universes. All the things that we're mm. talking about, whether it's Marvel, Star Wars, any of those things, those are huge, big fantasy blockbuster franchises, okay? You don't get those with you know small down-to-earth uh, location settings characters in the cinema. You get them on television, and when people and I was one of them, you know, we're going, you know, why why would Martin Scorsese do television? It's because of the of the you know the recurring character, the the the, the length of the, the the length of the playing field that you get. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a different experience because it is true that when you sit in a cinema, there does feel like there is a kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end of the thing that you've watched. 
you know, whether it's two hours long or four hours long or 90 minutes long, you sit down and you watch the beginning and the middle and the end of it. Even if it's James Bond that ends with James Bond will return. Yeah, fine. But this story had a <laughs> this story had a beginning, a middle and an end, unless it's Quantum of Solace, in which case it didn't have any of those things. You know, it just was a bunch of stuff. And then I don't know. But, but, but so, so, so the, the difference is what you should never try to do in that film format is to, is to do anything like what The Wire just did. Because you don't have the you don't have the space to do it. You, if you were going to make a film of the wire, right? How would you make a film of the wire? No. Think about this. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. No. One, you wouldn't. <laughs> if you did, because you're an idiot, the only way you could do it is to take one character, one single character, strip everything mm. else out, and possibly you know do the do the the and then it would and then it wouldn't be the wire. But that's the only way yeah. you could do it. You could. Maybe do Carcetti winning the election as a standalone story, but it's not that interesting. I mean, actually, the whole thing about Carcetti winning, and I love his character, incidentally. I just, I mm-hmm. love that character. I, I love yeah, everything too. about the way he slimes and everything about him. But, you know, the narrative is he's there to bring about change and he doesn't. Okay, and, and, and that's and and there we go. You know, or or as I said, if you take if you take the you know the the school season, you could say, okay, well, there mm-hmm. that's that's blackboard jungle. It's the you know it's the class that's unmanageable and then becomes something else. But in case, of, but but it's a totally different. Thing. So so yeah, the, the what they would learn is don't do this on tele, don't do this on the big screen. You'll just make a tit of yourself. <laughs> I've got I've got a couple of uh, things to say. I know we're coming close to time. Sure. Um, for me, the worst thing about the the recent Star Wars trilogy ending in the Rise of Skywalker isn't the fact that the film itself, the Rise of Skywalker, was bad per se. It was the fact that it doesn't solve it doesn't it doesn't conclude that narrative arc in the way that we've seen cinematic Marvel Cinematic Universe and The Wire do. So it's the fact that it doesn't make sense the context of the three three yeah. arc structure. Well, okay, that's the thing that's, that yeah. disappoints me the most with, with that film. No, um, hang on, we're let me so just say very quickly. The, the, I think the, Mark's the, talked about this before. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> the big problem with Rise of Skywalker is this. Okay, um, <laughs> it's it's not it's not a sequel. To, uh, to 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 the films that come exactly. before, because the most interesting yeah. thing about that arc is, hey, sh- you know, she she ran from nowhere. She could be anyone. Answer exactly. No, this. no, she's not anyone. She's his daughter. Oh, okay, yeah. fine. Sorry, you know, for one minute I thought, and there's that, you know, the lovely thing when you know the kid, you know, the kid picks up the thing, and okay, fine, you know, the yeah, the broom, yeah, this is like, interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I don't. We're not interested in that. We want to make a sequel with sequel to it. No, she is Ren from somewhere. Is, yeah. is, is she that's, called that's, Ren? That's, what, that's exactly what I mean. Her name is Ren, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, there is, I just think... Ray, sorry. Ray, Ray, Ray. That, yeah. That's how much that, that's kind of all kind of gone out the window. I can't even remember her name. Ray from nowhere. Okay. So there is that whole, you know, arc. Yeah, she's just, you know, my parents, I don't know, is your thing. And then the thing, and then I'm in the, the thing that can show me the past. And I turn out I'm nobody. That's fascinating. She's nobody. No, mm. no, no, no. She's, there's a lineage and that's why she's there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Exactly, exactly that. It's not not the film per se is bad. If if, if you're if the only Star Wars film you saw was the Rise of Skywalker, you might be like, this is quite this is quite interesting. But yeah, but it, yeah, it's, to, but it just throws the, everything out of the window it because everything of, out of you the know window. because a whole bunch of people got arsy about you know. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, let's let's let's, let's not go Internet there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Internet gammon. 
Well, does it, does it, is there a little bit of season five throwing some of the stuff of the wire out the window? Or not? I mean, because I know it gets a bit far-fetched, doesn't it, in, in season five? It stretches it a little bit. Well, like I said, the weird thing about season five is that that is actually the area that David Simon probably knows, mm. you know, because it's, I mean, it, it's, it's also, yeah. it's funny because, it's world. because that guy is the guy who ends up directing Spotlight, which is the thing that everyone yeah. always compares to all the president's men, which is, so all the pieces are in place, right? All the pieces are in place, but every minute they're in that, that office, I don't believe it. it I, go, I go, it feels, it feels the most contrived. But even having said that, I now want to smack myself in the face for saying it because I still enjoyed it. I still, I still wanted to, I've got, be, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Tom. I've got, I've got, I've got one last question, and it's yes. something that's that I've become obsessed with while we've been making this program because I listen to the wire rather than watch it these days. Okay. So I listen, to, I hear the sound of the wire, wow. and um, obviously, Mark, you've spoken a lot about sound design. I mean, recently we talked about sound of metal, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I just, I wonder if you had any thoughts on um, the sound design of the wire because I hear that phone ringing all the time. I can hear it in my sleep. That yeah. phone sound effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wonder if you had anything to add. I, th- I thought one of the most interesting things in the wire was when i mean for a start this is always the joke that you're seven episodes in before they get a wire up you know and it is like mm. why is it called the wire it's like down to the wire it's crossing the wire no it's a wire i mean i know it means all those things i know it means all those other things but the but the the initial thing is it's it's what well, we're back up on the wire really because now the, the series is nearly finished and now you've got the wire up and when they're doing that thing about listening to to the you know to the sounds on the you know the, the conversations and then there is a, there's a recurrent gag about the fact that they don't understand what people are saying and then there's the character who kind of explains to them what it is that people are saying that thing about just listening what you keep imagining is that that is going to be the conversation that is going to be the francis for couple you know the yes. conversation with, with gene yeah. Hackman, because that's the thing about you're listening but you don't quite understand what's being said and then you start to paranoically impose upon it what it is and in the conversation, when you watch the conversation, the film, you listen exactly as that character does, and and you actually become really paranoid, and you start to hear things that aren't there, um, and you 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 get drawn into that paranoid world. But the funny thing with the wire is that that's I mean, firstly because the, the technology is old. I mean, there's a thing about them texting, which is like you know they're texting. What, what is that? It's was it SMS messaging? No, it's just like they haven't even got it to their head. Um, but that that thing about you think that what you're going to what you're going to come away with is the sound of people listening, but you don't. What you come away with is the sound of the room in which they're listening. The fact that all the time this is happening, they're in the shittest office that anyone has ever worked in, <laughs> and all those conversations seem to be, you know, being held wherever they are, wherever they're having conversations. It's the wrong place. It's in a car, uh, yeah. which has got terrible audio, or it's you know it's on a phone line that they can't quite hear, or it's in a building that is way too big, or it's in a street but you can't quite hear what it's. It's really odd that of all the things when you talk about the audio, the thing that you don't come back to is the sound of them bugging the phones. Because the sound <laughs> that you hear is the sound of everything around them. And they're always in the mm. they're always in the wrong place. Can I just say instantly watching this the wire the second time? I didn't realise the first time, <clears throat> and you'll have to um tell me where this happens. There's a scene when they're doing the surveillance up on the roof. 
and he goes to have a pee, and when he has a pee, the the single most important thing happens <laughs> yeah. on the street, and he doesn't see it. The first time around, I didn't even notice that that happened. I didn't even notice that the, the thing that would have cracked the case wide open, he doesn't see because he's having a piss. I'm pretty sure that was Carver in season one, but I can't... <laughs> it's really I, I, yeah, funny. Yeah. It's just um, like, you know... It's, 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 it's so deliberate, though, isn't it? It's, again, it's like what you say, Mark. It's so deliberate. It's like sowing a seed of this Carver's character of being slightly incompetent. And, you know, and that's the rest... That, that sort of defines ugh. the rest of his arc, doesn't it? You know, mm. trying to become competent but you and don't, get better. But the and, thing you know, is, it's like it's full of those things that you don't see until the second time round. You don't yeah. see that, OK, this thing has happened, this... You know, whether it's who gets to put the window in the church, right, which then has consequences that just like completely over this completely (laughs) stupid (laughs) argument about who gets to put the window in the church. And also when that's being set up, because that whole episode, you're going, is this going somewhere? Is this whole thing going somewhere? Yeah, of course it's going somewhere. And and like everything, everything has consequences. And just to, just to finish, um, and also tying there's a, there's a, there's a fantastic piece of setup which which you've alluded to as well at the start of this um, a, a few minutes before. Um, first thing is, what would you say to Clark Peters um, now if you were to see him post wire uh, as Detective <laughs> Freeman? And also that ties in with this what you're talking about something being set up at the start where Snoop you see you see it buying the pneumatic drill uh, thing at the start of season one, so she gets the specific cr- screws. And when I saw that and I saw they were getting specific screws, I was like, I don't know how this is going to come unraveled, but I cannot wait. And of course, it's <laughs> Detective Freeman that, that crapped that case. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is kind of like, yeah, uh, you know, kind of ties in a few loose ends and, you know, we'll say, we'll say goodbye after. Yeah. After I mean, this. the thing I'd say to Clark Peters is firstly, did you keep any of the furniture and can I, can I, can I buy one of those models? Because I just, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love the fact that he's sitting there making these tiny little doll's house furniture things. And then someone gets asked whether they're worth anything. And he says, yeah, they actually, you know, it's really, there's that much. So I think, I mean, if I'd known, if I'd known when I had him on, I just, I would have got down and kissed his feet because it's just, he's, he's such a great character. And I never, I never didn't believe in him. And Mm. I love the fact that he's where he is because of who he is. And it's the long game. It's the long mm-hmm. game and, you know, there's the whole thing about he's the kind of moral compass. He's the he's mm-hmm. the person who's done the right thing and yet he's ended up, you know, in this kind of backwater. And so I love I love his I love his character's arc. But that thing when when he when he when he does the thing about brushing his hand over the over the boards and realizing yeah. That these that there's nails and there's and they're different and this is the key yeah. and he's and he's holding it and this is and that's the piece of detective work that kind of then despite the fact they're being told to not do it I also love the fact that there's a thing about don't go finding bodies before the end of the year because it will just screw up our crime statistics and that every time they find another body you know there's another higher up getting really cross about it and all the stuff and in fact that happens as well in season two about who's taking responsibility for it and there's a a bit about well we discovered that she died on this side of the line and then she would have floated to the other side of the line so it's their fault not you know i love all that happening but that thing and of course it makes sense that it's him who notices it and the reason it makes sense is not just because he's a great uh you know he's a great detective and all that stuff 
but because he's making the furniture. He's the guy who's sitting there whittling away. No, because with bits of wood, right? He's the person who would look at the wood because that's what he's doing with these things all the time. He would look at the wood on the thing and go, that's interesting. Who else would have noticed that? And it's set up that he would notice it because he's the guy that makes the furniture. Damn it. That's uh, that's a great way to finish. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you talking to you about the wire. Um, Clark Peters is a friend of the show, so we might send it to him and, uh, yeah. and see what he has to say. Okay. We okay. actually did. We actually did. We actually did. Do, we actually did do it on stage with Clark Peters about the wire, Mark, and it was wonderful. Oh, it was so yeah. good. He's Honestly, a, it was great. Such a it lovely was really good. I love the way he yeah. looks. Gonna, over the, gonna... I love the way he looks over the top of his glasses. I just, you know, I just, I, yes. I can't do it because they're too big. <laughs> but yeah, he's just great. He's just, he's just great. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and thank you very much to Mark for spending the time with us across two years uh, and thank you for watching The Wire twice and telling us what you thought about us because I think it's really insightful and it's great for the UK's most you know, well-renowned film critic to you know, turn heel and say, oh, TV's better. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, he does genuinely love The Wire, and he's yeah. he's seen The Wire more than I have. So I've, I've only, what? I'm actually only on my second. I'm watching it through as we make episodes. So I mean, this watch is going to take me. <laughs> so far, it's taken me nearly four years to, to get through to get through yes. my second Sorry, watch. <laughs> but um, no, it's great. And if you want more of Mark, do check out the Kermode on Film podcast. And yep. It is. Uh, I mean, I mean, I know I produce it and stuff, but it is really, really, very, very good. Um, so check it out. Yeah, do follow do follow Mark, and also do go to our Patreon, guys. We are super supporting the Ella Thompson Fund. We've got lots of interesting episodes to do with those guys coming soon in the pipeline, so stay tuned. Um, we really do appreciate your help, and the guys at Ella Thompson Fund really do appreciate what you're doing for for them as well. So do stick with us, and uh, well, well, we will be back in the next month or so with the next episode. Yeah, and Ooh. I'm off to go and finish my other podcast with Michael B. Jordan's personal trainer. Which is, is, he the, is he the one that trained him for Creed? He's the one that got him all hench for Creed, yeah. Unfortunately, um, I've only just recorded this episode, so it doesn't really help us for, you know, season one. But um, no. No, we could we could have got him. We could have got, got him. him. Oh, well. Yeah. Next time. Next time Wallace is in... I don't know what I'm going to say. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> <laughs> just heard a stripped media production.